Chicago, there was a meeting of the world religions. As the meeting went on one day, a man by the name of Dr. Joseph Cook stood to his feet and asked the the assembled religious leaders, Gentlemen, I beg to introduce to you a woman with a great sorrow. Bloodstains are on her hand, and nothing she has tried will remove them. The blood is that of murder. She has been driven to desperation and her distress. Is there anything in your religion that will remove her sin and give her peace? Silence fell over the gathering as none replied. After a few moments of silence, Dr. Cook raised his eyes heavenward and said, John, can you tell this woman how to be rid of our awful sin? The preacher waited as if listening for a reply, and then he cried out, Listen, John speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Not a soul spoke as the representatives from the Eastern religions and Western cults sat silently. The man who told the story concluded, In the face of human need, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone could meet the need. The sin of the race demanded the blood of Calvary. In all the modern discussions about the similarities of the world's religion, there is one thing that constantly demonstrates the uniqueness of Christianity, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the greatest message the world has ever known. The gospel meets the greatest need of the people have. What exactly is the gospel? Why is it so important? These are the things that that Paul answers in the text we're going to look at this morning. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 1 is where we're starting. That's page 879 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 15 and 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which, which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. And he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once. The greater whom, uh, the greater part remain in this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James and all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of time. For I am the least of all of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The title of the message this morning is The Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and wonderful, so worthy of our praise, so worthy of our devotion. Father, we come today with a great need to, to understand the certainty of the gospel, to be clear on what the gospel is, to be confident in the power of the gospel so that we can go out and we can help people come to know Jesus Christ. Father, today I, I pray that you would help us to lay aside the cares of life and you would help our hearts to be open to your words, that our hearts be the good ground, that your word can sink deep in and bring forth good fruit into our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. 
Let the message we hear today encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, change us, and equip us to go out and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. Father, we live in a, in a dark and a dying world. The gospel is light and it is life through Jesus Christ. Let us be convinced of that. Let us be your light bearers in this dark culture. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The church at Corinth, as we know, had many problems. One of the problems the church had was that there were pagan philosophies and wisdom coming into the church. And one of the ones that was most destructive was the one that talked about the resurrection of the dead. The wise people, the Greek culture, thought the idea of a resurrection was insane. In fact, in their mind, the body was a a prison that held you down. Death was a release. And so for them, to the idea of a resurrection was just the opposite of everything that you would want in life even. You would not want that. And, And then the concept that one could die and then come back to life again... It was foolish. It was just so much nonsense that was the stuff of myth and legend, not the stuff of truth and fact. And so when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to address this issue. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's great defense of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he starts out his defense of the resurrection with the gospel. Right? Paul explains, he's going to, he's going to lay out for them... The gospel of Jesus Christ. He's preached it before. He's going to preach it again. He needs them to understand it. Because as he says in verse 3, that he declared first of all, and in other translations it's more clear, but what he's saying is that the gospel is of first importance. Right? That the gospel is a priority. Right? In order for them to be lights in the darkened culture, they, they must get the gospel right. Nothing else matters. If they get the gospel wrong, it won't matter what else they get right. They must get the gospel right. And what he wants them and what we have to understand is our central truth. The gospel must always be our primary message. The gospel is of primary importance. It is central to who we are and to what we do. Now, we live in a day of many competing messages. That we live in a day where, where there are many Christians out there. And they are promoting one message or another, but not particularly and not exclusively. The gospel is what is central to that. And for the most part, the messages they preach are fine. Right? It, is, it is good to care for the poor. It is good to, to stand for life. It is good to stand against the iniquity of our culture. However... None of those are the gospel. Now, they may flow out of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. And in this world, we are going to be tempted to make something other than the gospel the primary message, the primary thing we are known for. And if we want to be lights for Christ in a dark culture, we cannot allow that to happen. We cannot allow things of secondary importance to replace what is of primary importance. The gospel must always be our primary message. Now, what I want us to understand about this is, as a church, the gospel must always be our primary message. But how can the gospel be our primary message if it's not your primary message as well? Right? The church is more than just this up here and what goes on right now. You guys are going to leave here in you know, 60, 70 minutes and go out into the world. 
And you're going to represent Christ and you're going to represent the church. So what happens in here, it influences you. But as far as influencing the culture, well, that's out there. And once you go out there, your primary message must be the gospel. See, it's not just that we always have to have the gospel when we gather. But we must be gospel people. We must be centered on the gospel above all else when we talk to people about sin and redemption and life and morality and everything else. We cannot get sidetracked with political messages. We cannot get sidetracked with preferential messages. We cannot get sidetracked in in endless arguments over things that do not profit. We must focus on the gospel. This passage shows us four ways that we can do that. Number one is be aware of the necessity of the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us four things, four truths about the gospel. The first is that Paul preached the gospel to them. He said, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. When Paul went to Corinth, he did not focus on secondary issues. When Paul went to Corinth, he didn't focus on, on any number of things. He didn't preach against the, the Roman emperor. He, he didn't preach against even necessarily the, the cults and the religions that were common in Corinth. What he preached to them was the gospel. If you remember, early on in our study, Paul told them that when he was there, and he was there for a year and a half, he determined to know nothing among them save Christ and Him crucified. Paul could have got carried away into secondary issues. Paul could have been drawn away into political ideological messages, but he didn't. He focused on the gospel. He preached the gospel to them. Secondly, they received the gospel, right? I preached the gospel to you, which you received. In other words, they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. They embraced it as truth and as something that was necessary for their lives. Thirdly, they are currently standing in the gospel. Right? At this particular moment, their hope is in the gospel. At this particular moment, they are still gospel people, even though they're being tempted to be led astray by other things. At the moment, they're standing in the gospel. And finally, which also, by which also you are saved. They were saved by the gospel. Again, it's a very important thing. The idea of being saved by the gospel, what he's telling them is that their salvation, right, initially, when he came there, they were saved, not because they turned over a new leaf. They weren't saved because they they took part in a certain political ideology. They weren't saved because they, they did all of these things. They were saved because they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins, they believed the gospel, and they were saved. And he wants them to understand that their salvation is always going to be dependent upon believing the gospel. Not that the gospel is so central to life. The gospel is so central to salvation that these false ideas that are coming in, if they embrace them and it leads them away from the gospel, they are going to be in problems and in trouble because you are saved initially, continually, and forever by faith in the gospel. Now, what he says in verse 2 is interesting. He says, you are, by which you are saved. Now, I've circled the word if. Because if is an important word in there. And it's a small word. Just two letters. But my, what power. You are saved by believing the gospel if. Now, 
With that if, he is making their salvation conditional, isn't he? They are saved by the gospel if. If what? If you hold fast that word which I preached to you. You are saved by the gospel if you continue to believe the gospel. Right? See, believing the gospel is not a one-time event. Believing the gospel and being saved, it's not coming to an altar and crying out in prayer and, and confessing Jesus Christ and getting up and going about your life and never caring about that again. It's not praying to Jesus today and then worshiping Buddha tomorrow. It's not believing in Jesus today and being an atheist tomorrow. It is a continual belief in Jesus. People are saved through faith in Christ. And it's always, they always must believe. And he said, unless, unless you have believed in vain. Which is an interesting statement. There are a couple of ways that this is understood. One is the idea that an, unless your initial faith was in vain. And what he says is, the idea with this one is, if you believe in Jesus today, basically if you believe in Jesus today, and then in some point in the future, you become led astray by this false doctrine. You begin to believe something other than the gospel. You leave the gospel. You abandon the gospel. If you do that, your previous faith was in vain. It was no good. It serves no eternal purpose because you have abandoned your salvation. You have abandoned Christ by believing something else. The other idea is that Paul is talking about what they're starting to believe, this false doctrine that's coming in, that you are going to believe something that is vain. Right? In other words, if they go from believing the gospel to believing something false, then this new faith is in vain. This new faith is foolish. It's useless. Right? Keep in mind, faith has no real power in and of itself. Faith is important and faith is significant, not because we believe it, but because of the object of our faith. Believing in something that's false has no more saving power than believing nothing at all. If I believe that this, this right here will save me and I pray to this and I believe this and I fervently believe this is my God. This is no better. This helps me no more eternally than if I am an atheist that do not believe in any God. There is no difference in a false faith and no faith. The only time that faith matters is when it is in the proper object. And, and this is, again, something we see in the natural world. If I believe I can fly and I jump off the school, I'm still not going to fly. No matter how firmly I believe it, no matter how sure I am that's the case, my believing it does not make it so. In the same way, believing something other than the gospel, no matter how firmly we believe it, does not make it so. Faith is only important, it is only saving, it is only eternally valuable if it is in the proper object. And what Paul is letting them know, if at some point they turn from their faith in the gospel... They are going to be headed towards eternal destruction. They must continue to believe in Jesus. Now, this message is not just in Paul. This is all throughout Scripture. Look at what Jesus said. He said, and you will be hated 
by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be what? Be saved. Now, Jesus is referring to a time when Christianity will not be popular. He's referring to a time when there will be persecution and hardship for the name of Jesus Christ. And in that time when it's difficult to serve Jesus, there will be some who are tempted to stop. There will be some who are tempted to abandon Jesus in order to save their own lives. And Jesus says that only those who persevere, only those who continue to believe, they will be saved. Now, the obvious implication of that is that those who don't endure will not be saved. You cannot abandon Jesus and expect to call heaven your home. You cannot stop believing the gospel and expect to be saved. You abandon Jesus when you abandon the gospel. When you abandon Jesus, you abandon everything. The gospel is necessary. It is necessary at the beginning of someone's salvation. It is necessary throughout their lives as a Christian. It is necessary at the end of their lives. We don't have time to look through Hebrews and such, but read it. About how important it is to believe just as strongly in the end as we did in the beginning. The gospel is is necessary. It is always necessary. It is the only message that saves. It It is not optional. As Paul says in verse 3, it it is of first importance. You know, there are things within Christianity that we can agree to disagree on. The gospel is not one of them. We can agree to disagree on what kind of music to sing. We can agree to disagree on what Bible version we should use. We can agree to disagree on, on the particulars of the end times. We could probably even agree to disagree on the proper mode of baptism. But the gospel is not like those things. It is of first importance. If we get the gospel wrong, we miss everything. And if we are to be a people that make the gospel our primary message, we will only make it our primary message because we, we know We are convinced of the absolute necessity of the gospel. Listen, we must understand people do not go to heaven because they are nice. People do not go to heaven because they are moral. People do not go to heaven because they go to church or because they have been baptized. People are saved through faith in Christ that comes through the gospel. Everything hinges upon that. If we are going to be a people that make the gospel our primary message, there must be an absolute conviction. The gospel is necessary at all points in a person's life. Secondly, be confident in the message of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we have to understand what the gospel is. Because the gospel isn't just anything. A lot of times in our culture, how many of us have heard somebody say, now that's the gospel truth. You ever heard that? Raise your hand. Right. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean this is absolutely true. This is a certainty, right? Well, it's easy to think when we begin to talk about something that that's the gospel truth. That the gospel is really a very particular message. It's not just anything we want to say. There is a, a very specific message that makes up the gospel. And here's what Paul says. For I delivered to you. 
First of all, that which I received. Right? So, I, I told you of primary importance, that which I received. And here he goes to explain the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. That's the start of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins. Right? He didn't die as a martyr for the cause. He didn't die because he made the wrong people angry. Jesus died for our sins. Now, we know that. We've heard that many, many times. And, and there is a temptation, I think. A tendency, maybe. More than a temptation. To become so familiar with the idea that Jesus died for our sins that we, we lose the magnitude of what actually happened. It doesn't resonate with us any longer as much as it did when we first heard it. So what I want us to do this morning is, is to walk through Matthew's account of the crucifixion, of Jesus' death on the cross. To let it weigh heavily on our hearts, because it should. The fact that Jesus died for our sins and what He went through, that should be significant. We should never lose the, the wow at what Jesus did for us. So let's turn first to Matthew 26, verse 67 is where we're starting. And that should be on page 753 if you have a pew Bible. Matthew 26, 67. This is towards the end of his trial by the, the Sanhedrin. And it says that then they, they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? This is the beginning of the humiliation and the death of Jesus Christ. This is happening at the hands of the religious leaders of the Jews. Of all of the people of the world that should have received Jesus Christ, it should have been them. They should have recognized His ministry as fulfilling Scripture. They should have recognized His life as being that of the Messiah. They should have declared Him to the people and told them to bow down. But because He threatened their security, because He was not the way they wanted... They rejected him, they spat on him, and they began to beat him. But it gets worse. Turn to Matthew 27 and verse 26. They eventually take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, because they did not have the power to execute under Roman occupation. And they want Pilate to execute Jesus. Pilate examines Jesus and he says, I, I really don't find anything wrong with him. I think we should let him go. And the people say, no, no. He calls himself a king. We have no king but Caesar. He is seditious. He's a problem. But Pilate had a custom. And on the, on, in his custom, he would release a prisoner whom the people chose in order to curry favor with him. And I think in, in Pilate, Pilate's mind, he thought if he presented such a stark contrast between someone really bad and Jesus that he knew really hadn't done anything wrong, that the people would see the error of their ways. And they would then turn and say, no, release Jesus. And so he asked them in verse 26 and 25, well, in verses previous to that, who they wanted to release, Pilate, or Jesus, or Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a bad guy. 
Barabbas was a thief. Seems that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was causing problems for the people. And the people cried out and they said, Release Jesus and not Barabbas. And so Pilate did as they requested and he released Barabbas. And, and then he just went on at that point to do what needed to be done to someone going to be crucified. He, it says that he had him scourged. Now, that's just a small saying. He had him scourged. It's easy for us again to bypass that. So let me explain what happened when a person was scourged by the Romans. First, they were taken to a public place because humiliation was a part of the process. And they were stripped completely naked. Then they were chained to something. And and different sources say they were either chained, bent over like this, or they were chained with their arms up over their head. But either way, they were chained. And two Romans would stand, one on either side, with a whip that had multiple ends. And the ends all had something on them. A piece of glass. A jagged rock, a bone, a piece of sharp metal, something that would, that would dig in. And they would take turns hitting the person. And the, the target was basically everywhere. Not just the back, but everywhere. And they would hit them with that whip. And when they would hit them with that whip, the sharp jagged ends would dig in and often break bones. And they would jerk it back and it would rip them open. And they would do this a prescribed number of times. Now, the, 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 scour- the Roman scourging was so bad, most people died from it. Those that didn't were often just, in fact, they called them half dead. In other words, they were so damaged at that point that even if they didn't take them to crucify them, they were not going to survive. The medical knowledge in that day did not exist to save a person after they had been abused by the Romans in such a state. And and when it says that Jesus was scourged, that's what happened to him. Two Roman soldiers used this, they called it the horrible whip, and they, they beat him until they got tired of beating him, until he was nearly dead. But they weren't through. In verse 27, it says, and the verse says, they delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers... Of the government of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. That's a lot of folks. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and they they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. Now, the thorns that they used would have been big, not tiny little thorns, big thorns. Push them down hard, ripping the flesh of his head, likely scratching the bone. They, they mocked him, adding to his humiliation. They took the stick and they beat him about the head and the shoulders with it. Roman soldiers were big, burly guys. This was a painful, horrible experience, but it wasn't over. And when they had mocked him, and really the idea, it seems to be, they just did it until they got tired of doing it. It wasn't fun anymore. They did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they all did it, and then it wasn't fun, so they decided to go on and go ahead and take him and crucify him, I guess. And they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Jesus, in verse 32, says, was so weak that he could not carry his own cross. They compelled a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry it, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, that is the place of the skull. They gave him sour wine 
with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Now, this was used by the Romans for a couple of things. Part was to numb the pain. But the Romans wanted people to suffer, but they didn't want them to pass out. If the pain was so extreme that they passed out, they would just die, and the Romans would not get to watch the pleasure of the person suffering. The, this was not necessarily an act of mercy on the part of the Romans. It was so they would struggle longer, and they would fight to live longer, and the Romans could watch it. They, they enjoyed the, the people dying. But Jesus didn't take it. And He didn't take it because... At this point, he had to endure all the wrath of God against sin. He, he could not have the pain numb. He had to take it all and suffer all that there was. And then they, they crucified him. And they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. And then they lifted him up. And they dropped him into a hole is basically what they did. And it would drop a couple of feet, two to three feet, and jerk to a stop. In many instances, the jerk was so severe that it dislocated the shoulders of the person being crucified, which added to the pain because when you're crucified, the way you die is you suffocate. When you're stretched out like that, you suffocate. And all you can do to get air is pull with the nails in your hand and push on the nails in your feet and lift up and relieve some of the pressure. And you could only lift up and do it so many times. And all of this is what was happening to Jesus at this time. It says then that they, they mocked him some more. It kept on all throughout his life. And, and then notice what happened in verse 46. Well, verse 45. Now from the, the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness in all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of experiencing the wrath of God against our sin, Jesus had to experience what we experience in sin, and that is separation from God. And the idea that it became dark and that he felt forsaken is really the idea that God almost, it's like he turned his back on him. Jesus experienced for the first and the only time in history separation from from God his Father. Now, known that my whole life, but it never really sunk into me until I was a parent. Right? Because my girls can do any number of things that I may not be proud of, and it may be wrong. But to the best of my abilities, I will go with them to the end, wherever that may lead. But so that you and I could be saved, God the Father could not do that to his son. He had to let him die alone. Feel that feeling of abandonment, that feeling of separation. Again, this was all for us. And then, of course, Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice. John tells us that he cried out, it is finished. And then he gave up the ghost. He died. And at that point, the penalty for our sins had been paid. The redemption through faith in Jesus was possible. Which, when you think of the cross and that you know, Jesus died for our sins. That's the gospel. That's what it means when it says that Jesus died for our sins. Can you see why that should be the primary message that we that we focus on? I mean, isn't that so much better than this politician or that one? Isn't this so much better than this Bible version or that one? So much better than this musical style or that one? So much more significant right? and, and necessary. Can you imagine Jesus going through all of that and then God just saying, you know, Michael, you're a pretty good old boy. You were always nice. You were faithful to the husband. But you didn't believe in me. It's not that big of a deal. Come on in. 
doesn't even make any sense, does it? When we understand the message of the gospel, we grasp the significance and why the gospel is necessary and why it must be our primary message. Go ahead and turn back to to 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sin. And then verse 4, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. The message isn't that Jesus just died and stayed dead. He, he rose again. Now, that he was buried is meant to let us know that he truly died. Right? He, he didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He was dead. He was buried. And he, he rose from the dead. The resurrection is just as important a part of the gospel as the death of Jesus. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the death of Jesus would not be significant if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus. Because the Romans... They killed an awful lot of folks. They crucified, I mean, at least two or three other people on the day that Jesus died. So what makes Jesus' death significant, more important than any of the others they did? Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He came back to life, never to die again. The only person ever to do that. That makes the, the, the resurrection is... It is, it is critical. It is just as critical as anything else. We, we must understand and we must believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, this is important because in our day it is common to say that the resurrection is a faith event and not a factual event. The difference between a faith event and a factual event is that a faith event doesn't have to be true as long as we believe it. And that's what the resurrection is. It's just a, a faith event. We just believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't matter whether or not he actually did. Now, that's a problem. Because the resurrection, as it's portrayed in Scripture, and in fact, next week we'll talk about what life would be like if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But Scripture always portrays the resurrection as a factual event, not a faith event. Look at what Paul says. Verse 5. And then he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James and the other apostles, and last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Right? Paul is saying that, the, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That this isn't just a cool thing. It's not just something that makes us feel good. His spirit didn't rise from the grave. Jesus rose and there are people that you can talk to that saw him. It is a, a real thing and we have to be confident that the message of the gospel is true. That Jesus really did live. And Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. And that Jesus really did rise from the dead. All of that is significant. All of that is part of what it means to believe the gospel. And Paul repeats in verses 3 and 4, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus' death on the cross was the plan. It was the purpose. It's why he came. He wasn't a martyr for the cause. He wasn't disliked by the wrong people. Jesus came for the express purpose of dying for our sins. This was God's plan for 
Jesus. Everything that happened happened exactly the way God wanted it to happen so that our sins could be forgiven. We could receive eternal life. We need to be confident of that message. So the, the gospel should be our primary message, but it won't be if we're not confident that it's true. If we're not confident that Jesus really lived, that Jesus really died, and that Jesus really rose from the dead, and all of this was part God's plan. We must be confident of the gospel. And then finally, be convinced in the power of the gospel. Verse 9 and 10 present such a great contrast. From the least of the apostles, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundant than they all. Yet not I, the grace of God, which was with me. Paul presents a contrast. There was a change that was made in Paul's life when he met Jesus, when he believed the gospel. When Paul said he was a persecutor, and that's a big thing. Paul wasn't just somebody who was moral and not really in favor of Jesus in the church. Paul was antagonistic. In, in fact, I've said this before, but if Paul lived today, he would be the equivalent of an ISIS member as to how hostile he was toward the church. Look at Paul's own testimony of himself. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was formerly, notice how he describes himself, a blasphemer. Now, I want you to think about this. Who did Paul blaspheme? Jesus Christ. Right? Paul mocked the name, the person, and the idea that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He, he mocked Jesus. He mocked those who believed in Him. Paul, I mean, he would be one of the guys taking the blasphemy challenge. I mean, he would be saying, you're stupid for believing it. There's no way Jesus is this guy that we've been waiting for. I mean, he mocked the very idea that that could be the case. But he not only was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor. And as a persecutor, Paul hated Jesus Christ to the point that he did all that he could to stop the name of Jesus from being spread. And he didn't do it like through Facebook posts. I mean, he didn't like tweet, I hate Jesus and I wish he would go away. Right? He didn't even debate Jesus' believers. He didn't stand up and, and they have a respectful dialogue about who was right. Paul got letters from religious leaders. He went all over the world and he found Jews who believed in Jesus. He put them in chains. He drug them back to the Sanhedrin where they were given two options. Deny Jesus or be stoned to death. And when people were stoned to death, Paul approved of that. In fact, the fact that Paul was an insolent man. Insolent. William Barclay says that the idea of insolent means that Paul was a bit of a sadist. He enjoyed inflicting pain on those who named the name of Christ. You could almost say that when Paul brought people back, he hoped they would not recant. He wanted them to die for their faith. And then dying for Jesus in that horrible way of being stoned, pleased Paul, he enjoyed everything about it. 
That's who Paul was before Jesus saved him. Man, if Jesus can save somebody like that, boy, he can certainly save anybody we know because I don't personally know anybody that bad. I know people that may be slightly immoral. And I know people who might be a little antagonistic or very apathetic, but I, I don't know persecutors, legit persecutors of the church. I don't know anybody like that. I, I don't know people who hurt Christians and enjoy watching them suffer. I don't know people like that. But Paul was a person like that. And he went from being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man to saying, but the grace of God I am what I am, for His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He went from doing all that he could to shutting the church down, to doing all that he could, to spreading the gospel all over the world. Jesus changed his life. And if Jesus can change Paul, he can certainly change anyone that you and I know. We must be confident in the power of the gospel. I mean, you think about someone that you know that is not living for Jesus. Are you convinced, absolutely certain, that Jesus can save them? That He can change them and make them into a new person? We must believe it. The gospel will never be our primary message until we're sure of that. We believe it. I think this is one of the reasons the church has gotten away from the gospel and we've gotten more towards politics. We would rather cause people to to keep our morality and go to hell than trust in the gospel to save souls and change lives. And I think that's part of the reason the world's in the shape that it's in today. We have traded Holy Spirit gospel power for political influence and the ability to boycott and force people to bend to our will. And look at what that's gotten us. Not a whole lot of anything worthwhile. We must be confident in the power of the gospel. It will never be our primary message until we are absolutely sure the gospel can change lives. Faith in the gospel makes an eternal difference in someone's life. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.